This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Good afternoon, good afternoon, good afternoon. Welcome back for another wonderful week of our Parsha discussion. I want to thank you all for coming out here. I want to thank you for being here. I want to thank you for those who are here on Zoom. I want to thank for those who are here in person. I want to thank the amazing staff at Yeshua Bethi Hood and Partners Detroit. I want to thank the amazing folk over at Torah Anytime. It's an app, it's a website. It's filled with almost 300,000 Torah classes. Like I said last week, I'd like to give you that challenge. Take one class a day for the next 300,000 days and come back to me with a list of your 4,000 favorites. Okay, uh, this week's Torah portion is going to be Parshas Mishpatim. Parshas Mishpatim. So last week's Torah portion is when Hashem gives the Torah at Har Sinai. And we right away open up this week's Torah portion right after the Ten Commandments. And these are the statutes that you shall put before them. And the Torah goes on to list roughly about 50 mitzvos in this week's Torah portion. Far ranging in their uh, rules. Some of them are the ones that refer to a Jewish servant. Some are the ones who deal with murder. Some are the ones that deal with uh, there's so many different laws here. One who strikes his mother and father. And one who curses his parents. Um, what happens if you, if you have an animal of yours do something wrong? Like, it, 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 self-defense for theft. The damages for, to li- that your livestock do. There's, what happens if you're asked to watch something? Someone asks you, hey, can you watch my laptop? And you put it down in your house. And then there's a tornado, right? And your laptop is gone now, right? Who's responsible? You never got it back to the person who gave it to you. So many different laws. Mostly, mostly dealing of the laws between man and fellow man. Now, there's a very strong juxtaposition noticed here by almost all the rabbis. We just got the Torah, the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And then immediately when we launch into the mitzvos, the, the 50 mitzvos that were given in the Parsha right after the Ten Commandments are mostly laws between man and fellow man. And as Rashi explains to us, anytime it says the word Ela, these are, then it's negating what was said before. Ve'ela and these are, the word and, the Ve'ela and these are, mostly it's coming to add onto what was previously said. Mari Shonim Misinai, just like the laws that were previously given, do not kill, do not, st- uh, sorry, do, do not, do not uh, take my name in vain, don't serve other gods, I am the Lord your God, the Shabbos, just like those were said from Sinai, Mari Shonim Misinai, Af Elu Misinai, so too these are from Sinai. The laws that if you watch something, if someone gives you something to watch, you're responsible for it. If you are negligent and it ends up getting stolen, you left, you, someone gives you the laptop to watch and you left your car doors and windows open and someone just reached in and stole it, you're liable. Now, interestingly, if you live in San Francisco, it's exactly the opposite. Right? Because as someone said, no, San Francisco is plenty safe. You just have to leave all your windows down or else they'll break them. <laughs> yeah, let me repeat that. San Francisco is plenty safe. You just have to leave all your windows down or else they'll break them. Wow, yeah, that feels very, very safe. So, the laws, uh, the Torah is trying to tell you, don't think that kosher is a God-given law. Shabbos is a God-given law. Tzitzis is a God-given law. Shofar is a God-given law. But, being responsible for things in your care, if your animal goes out and eats someone else's tomato patch, you're responsible, that's obvious, that's a human law. No, no, no. Ma'elumi Sinai, just like these are from Sinai, these are God-given laws. Af'elumi Sinai, so too these are God-given laws. Now, here's a very interesting thing. There is an entire uh, tractate, there's an entire masechta in the Mishnah called Ethics of Our Fathers, Pirkei Avos. Now, there are six orders of the Mishnah. There's Zeraim, which primarily deals with agricultural laws. There's Moed, which primarily deals with time-bound laws. Nashim, laws of women and family, all the laws of marriage, divorce, etc., etc. Nizikin, laws of torts and damages, right? Civil law, so to speak. Kodashim, laws of the various sacrifices. And Taharot, the laws of ritual purity and impurity. 
Now, where is ethics of our fathers? It's buried deep in the middle of Nezikin. It's buried deep in the middle of the laws that are tort laws. The laws of, you know, what happens if your ox gores another person's ox? What happens if two people find a lost object and they hold on to it at the same time? What happens if you want to build a wall and your neighbor doesn't want to build a law, a wall? So, right in there is the laws of Pirkei Avos. But not only that, the laws of Pirkei Avos start with the following Mishnah. Moshe Kibbal Torah Misinai. Moshe received the Torah at Sinai and gave it over to the elders. And the Yoshua, he gave it to Joshua and Joshua to the elders and the elders to the prophets and so on and so forth. So where is, it, where is that Mishnah that tells you the provenance of the Torah? You would think it'd be in the, in the, that should probably be the very first Mishnah of all the Mishnahs. Just start off with like provenance. You know, you go to an art show, you want to know where does this come from, right? So they tell you this painting was first painted in the year 1516, and here who's owned it, and we have the documents. You want to know where it comes from? That makes sense. Start off the whole Mishnah with that. But no, you got to bury deep in the middle in, in the beginning of this tract that deals with laws. It's not, it's not even laws. Ethics of our fathers talks about. The siagla chachmashtika, the, the wall around wisdom, is being silent. And emor ma'atva sehar bay, do do say a little and do a lot. Right? Uh, don't judge your friend until you're in his shoes. Right? These are all like those like nice ethical aphorisms. But that is exactly where the Mishnah decides to tell you that Moshe received the Torah from Sinai to understand. That the Torah is not just giving you laws that obviously would not be otherwise understandable. Meaning nobody on their own, out of their own thought process would come up with shofar, right? Could you imagine somebody just saying, huh, I want to create a whole new set of laws. Why don't you all grab a horn and blow it on the new year? Like, blow it broken, blow it whole, tekiah shavarim drua tekiah. No, nobody ever would have come up with that, ever, on their own. Or how about, uh, you know, shaking the lulav, right? If I was creating a religion, we'd be like, yeah, I want you to grab, let's see, um, uh, a palm branch. Let's throw in a weird citrus fruit that's not used for anything else, called the citron. And then, uh, let's see, let's get some leafy stuff in there. Uh, the myrtle and uh, some, some, uh, some willows. Yeah, let's take them all together. That would not be something you would come up with on your own. But, say a little and do a lot, I probably can come up with it on my own. Right? Who is the wise man? He who learns from every person. That sounds like something that you can come up with on your own. Don't think that that is any less Torah than shaking the lulav and blowing the shofar. When you decide to keep your mouth shut because you remember that the wall around wisdom is silence, you could have just, okay, you're, you're shaking a shofar. You're shaking a lulav right now. You're blowing a shofar. Understand that. When you're in business and someone mails you a check for more than they owe, by mistake, they thought they, they, they owed you seventy two thirty four, but really they owed you seventy one thirty four. whatever it is, they were off. And you're going to send back the money. You could say, Hineni muzuman mitzvas The mitzvah of Hin Sedek You should say, like, you should, you should put on your, 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 your hat and your jacket and say a whole, like, I'm doing a mitzvah right now. Now, I'm just being honest. No, that, that is a mitzvah. You shall stay far from falsehood. This week's Torah portion. You shall have just weights and measures. That's a mitzvah in the Torah. You make sure you keep your scale at, in your job when you're measuring the fruit. You keep sure you make sure it's always calibrated, right? You know, scales, by the way, it used to be they used to have physical scales. You know, you'd put this thing on one side, you'd put that thing on the other side. Now, of course, everything is weighed digitally. But, you know, digital scales are off all the time, right? They, they, they lose, they need to be calibrated. You've got to go through a calibration process, Right? Sometimes your scale is off by, whatever, a couple grams, 12 grams, whatever it is. You make sure you come in every day and you recalibrate your scales and your measures. You ever have that experience where you go to the gas station and you fill up with gas and they say like, 19 and a half gallons. You're like, I'm driving a Toyota Corolla. 
I don't think it fits 19 and a half gallons. It's got a 16 gallon gas tank. How did I get 19 gallons? Somebody there hasn't been calibrating their. Uh, now, of course, if you look on every gas on every gas pump, there's like these stickers, you know, that it's been checked by the weights and measures, whatever it is. The point is, when you do that, when you calibrate your weights and measures, you're doing a mitzvah, just as important as fasting on Yom Kippur. When you have a, if someone asks you, uh, where were you last night, and you have a, you want to just. Eh, whatever, I don't want to tell them where I was, I'll just make up a story. I was, just, I, was, I was home with my wife. It's complicated. If I tell them I went out, whoa, why didn't you give me a call? Whatever, you know. you got to be honest. That's a mitzvah, like fasting. <laughs> All those things that we say in Pirkei Avos, that are just telling you how to live your life, those are mitzvahs from Sinai. Ma'elumi Sinai, af'elumi Sinai. All the laws between man and fellow man, they, these are all just as important as fasting on Yom Kippur. You would never eat treif. You would never put a, a treif food. You'd never eat shrimp. You'd never eat lard or pepperoni, baby back ribs. Don't let a lie out of your mouth the same way you wouldn't let a piece of chazer into your mouth. They're both the same. Ma elumi Sinai, af elumi Sinai. Just like these are from Sinai, so too these are from Sinai. Now, the Torah goes into the laws over here of of a the Jewish slave. So over here, it likes writing Jewish bondsman, right? What is it? Why is it called a Jewish bondsman? Because how does it become a slave? The person stole something, right? He went into a, uh, a Nike store and he filled up a black bag with sweatshirts and shoes and he ran out and he forgot which state he was in. His biggest mistake. He's like, oh man, I thought I was still in California. No, 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 no. You were on vacation. You were in Texas. <laughs> you were in Arkansas, my friend. You can't just walk into a Nike store and fill up a bag full of sweatshirts and shoes and walk out in Arkansas. You can do that in California, you can do it in, in New York, but you can't do that in Arkansas. So now they catch you. But you already sold it all. On Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist, wherever you sell your stolen items. So what do you do? In the Jewish court system, they would sell you to pay off your debt. Hence the word bondsman. You'd be released with a bond that you have to pay. You have a financial obligation to meet, and the court would literally sell you as a bondsman. However, when you were sold, there was an enormous amount of respect and concern given to the slave. The Gemara tells us if the slave and the master, if the master, it says, call a kona evet ki'ilu kona ra, ki'ilu kona ravlatmo, whoever buys a. I, think, I forgot the exact language, but basically whoever buys a Jewish slave over here, it's like he's buying a master, because if you only have one pillow at home, who gets the pillow? The slave. Right? Whatever you have, if you're serving food, the baseline food is whatever you're giving to the slave. Everyone, that's going to be available to everybody. You don't take better food for yourself and give him worse food. Now here's the fascinating thing. After telling you the laws of the Jewish slave... It tells you, the next mitzvah tells you, one who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. Right after the law of the Jewish bondsman, the Jewish slave, it says, one who strikes his fellow man and kills him shall be put to death. Now first of all, interestingly enough, I just want to point out, are we pro-capital punishment? Hint, hint. One who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. The answer is yes, but it's complicated. By Jewish law, it was almost impossible to get a death sentence. The level of rigor in the cross-examination of the witnesses and the amount of the, the witnesses, not only, they can't just witness somebody killing somebody, they have to warn him first, right? So if you could imagine, a guy's holding a gun, I'm holding a gun to Lee's head over here, like, I'm going to kill you! Now, probably anybody who's watching doesn't want to come in and say, wait, wait, guy, we have to warn you right now. What you're doing is forbidden, and if you do it, you'll be put to death. 
Because there's a good likelihood after they tell me that, what do I do? Turn the gun on them. Let's re- eliminate the witnesses, right? So I can't imagine a lot of people stepping forward. Hold on, sir. Hold on, you with the machine gun. Don't kill Lee because then we're going to testify against you and you're going to be put to death. But not only do they have to warn the guy, the guy has to respond immediately in the affirmative. So I have to, I have to say back, I hear that, I know, and that's okay. And then shoot him immediately. So the chance of actually putting someone to death for that is we are pro-capital punishment. The idea needs to be there that you can't, there can't be chaos and anarchy. However, its application is very, very, very limited. Why is it that right after the law of the Jewish servant, slave, bondsman, whatever you want to call him, is the law of if you kill somebody, you get killed? So Rabbi Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, the great, brilliant German rabbi from the 1800s, he says that if you actually look at it, what a lot of the, he says the overall theme of this week's parsha is covered abrios, respect for human beings, and he says respect, R E S P E C T, respect starts from the bottom. Respect in society starts from how do you treat the slave. When we treat even the person at the bottom of the totem pole in society, the guy who stole and has to be sold into slavery because he stole and he doesn't have anything to pay back. So the penniless thief, right? How you treat the penniless thief is going to determine how people are viewed in society and that's even going to determine... The murder rate. Because the more we have an absolute respect for humanity and society, the less the insults, the less the animosity, the less the petty thievery, the less the small crimes, the less the assaults, the less the grand larceny, the less less the, the, the assault and battery, the less all the way up to homicide. When we lose the sense of respect for humanity, everything goes... And the final result of that is murder and homicide. I want to bring up something over here. I forgot to print it out, so I have it on my computer over here. There was a theory of combating crime known as the broken windows theory. You guys remember that one? Okay. All right, here you go. Let me make a bracha. Thank you for uh, Rabbi Ezer for putting out this uh, soda. Baruch Atah Adonai Lehinam Elchaylam Shachal Niyab Dvarai. Okay, the broken windows theory was based on a a couple of social scientists in the early eighties, James Q. Wilson and George L. Kelling. Okay, they put out an article. They they they, they put out this philosophy of broken windows theory and it ended up being picked up by the police in New York City in 1990s and here is just a, a the, the, the broken windows theory that which was more written up as a scientific social studies you know a soci- sociology study was brought to the masses in a article in the Atlantic magazine in the March issue of 1982 and I'll quote Social psychologists and police officers tend to agree that if a window in a building is broken and left unrepaired, all the rest of the windows will soon be broken. This is as true in nice neighborhoods as in rundown ones. Window breaking does not necessarily occur on a large scale because some areas are inhabited by determined window breakers, whereas others are populated by window lovers. Rather, one unrepaired broken window is a signal that no one cares. And so breaking more windows costs nothing. This idea was, is that if you let the little things go by, the petty thievery, the graffiti, the vandalizing, the little things happen, then bigger things happen too because the social moral fabric starts to break down. There starts to be a sense of nobody cares. 
So, for example, there was a guy named Bill Bratton, William Bratton. He became the head of the New York City Transit Police in 1990. And he was a big Talmud of Kelling, one of the articles, uh, one of the authors of that article. He called him an intellectual mentor of him. So as soon as he became the head of the New York City Transit Police, he started breaking down, uh, sorry, yeah, he started, no, not breaking windows, he started cracking down on the petty stuff that used to go on, the fare evasion, right? People used to leap over the turnstiles very frequently in New York. There used to be a lot of, um, a lot of graffiti. I remember in New York City, I lived in New York City, I got there in 94, and you could still see there was tons of leftover graffiti. He got there in 1990, and he started cleaning it up. But there was almost every single subway was covered in graffiti in the 80s. The subway stations, the subway tunnels, the subway everything. So he started cracking down on graffiti, started cracking down on fare evasion, started cracking down, I remember, <laughs> on people sleeping in the, in the subways. What happened? The subways became safer and cleaner. And then eventually, Rudy Giuliani, who was the mayor of New York City in 1993, got elected. He appointed Bratton to be the police commissioner of the whole city. And he did a a similar thing. He He started cracking down on the small crimes. Public drinking. Public urination. Graffiti. Pickpocketing. Other kinds of small, petty crimes. And what happened? The city saw a marked, marked reduction in overall crime. Overall crime, not just the petty stuff. The big stuff, too. You start at the bottom. Make it a place where people care. If you clean off the litter in front of your store every day, there will be less litter in front of your store. But if you leave it, it will just start to become, oh, this guy doesn't care, so everyone throws out their litter in front of your store. Right? Right? The basic idea was you got to start at the bottom and that will determine the top. Says Rev Shaim, and by the way, th- this is really where our society has gone so far off today. Like, re- where we've really gone off today is if they said, okay, we're not going to prosecute all these petty crimes. Of course, mind you, in California, the definition of petty crime is stealing anything less than $950, right? Which is unbelievable. It's actually, recently, Gavin Newsom, the... Uh, the governor of California was in a Target. And while he's in Target, he sees people taking stuff and walking out with it. So he said to the cashier, why do those people just walk out with that stuff? And she said, oh, Gavin Newsom said that you could just steal whatever you want and they're not, not going to prosecute you. And then she's looking at him, she's like, oh. <laughs> and he was like so upset. He's like, I never said that. He's like, yeah, you did. Like, when you changed the law and said, we're not going to prosecute things under 950, like, it's unbelievable, this lack of awareness. Like, you create these crimes and you watch them happening and you're like, you're baffled. Like, how did this happen? Oh, because you said you were not going to prosecute the, you know, shoplifting, shoplifting under 950. Recently, one of the, someone was saying, you know, for us to be cracking down on shoplifting, sometimes people don't have any foods. They have to shoplift bread. I'm like, I don't know, but I haven't seen videos of people shoplifting bread. Has anybody here seen videos of people shoplifting bread? (laughs) I don't think so. Exactly. I mean, everything but bread. Right? They're stealing everything from shampoo out of CVSs and deodorant and shampoo. And they're they're stealing, you know, like all the designer clothing and designer handbags, right? They're stealing stereo systems, they're stealing, they're stealing whatever they can fit in, in their bags. They're now walking in with entire bags and just calmly filling them up and walking out. Now, says Rav Shamshim Rafal Hirsch, the bottom level of society, what you tolerate, is going to dictate the top level of society. If in a society you don't treat even the poor, penniless thief, if you don't treat him with dignity, he's got to be punished. We're not going to turn a blind eye. He's going to be sold into slavery. But in slavery, there's all kinds of laws in place to make sure he's given proper honor and proper respect. That's going to rehabilitate him. Do you think you're going to rehabilitate criminals by sending them to prisons where they basically hang out, watch TV, work out, and just congregate with more criminals? No, that's why America has the highest recidivism rate in the world. The the Torah's form of 
Rehabilitating criminals, you're a thief, you stole, here's what's going to happen. You're going to now become part of this guy's household. And you're going to see, he's going to treat you with absolute dignity and respect. If there's only one pillow, you get it. You get to eat the same level of food as him. He's going to treat you like a mensch. And you'll spend a couple years working alongside him, being productive. And that's how you rehabilitate somebody. Now, obviously, you can't rehabilitate violent criminals the same way. Imagine they say, okay, we've got a, you know, a murderer here. Who wants to take him in and have him work in their house for the next six years? No thanks. But the point is, you start with the small stuff, and the big stuff works itself out. That's what it means. We have to have a society that has basic rules of respect and dignity, laws, and that's how you build a society where there's not the murder and the homicide, because there's respect for human decency. Okay. That is idea number one for today. Next. Hold on a second. <clears throat> oh, this is, this is a fascinating one. Okay. The Torah talks about a fascinating thing over here. If you, if you have to loan somebody money, Look at it inside. Chav Beis, Chav Vav. This is an Exodus Chav Beis 22-26. Im Kesef Talves Ami. The word Im generally in Hebrew means what? If. However, there are four times in the Torah where the word Im does not mean if, but it means when. And this is one of them. Okay? Im Kesef Talves Ami. When you lend money to my people, as ha'animach, the poor person with you, lo lo kenosha, you shall not be oppressive towards him. Lo sasimun alav neshech, you're not allowed to charge him interest. Now, what happens though? How do I get my stuff back if the guy doesn't want to pay? So at a certain point, you're allowed to take what's called a mashkon. A mashkon is collateral. Okay? So now... When you think of collateral, what do you think of? A second mortgage, right? A lien on your house or whatever it is. But in those days, not necessarily where you... I mean, people came for a... You know, it's, I had a friend of mine who was in the pawn shop business. He, he didn't own a pawn shop, but he serviced pawn shops. And pawn shops, are, I mean, they charge exorbitant rates and all that. I'm not, I'm not here to advocate for the pawn shop. Although, fascinatingly enough... It's, it's, it's fascinating. People have big problems with the pawn shops. But on the other hand, let's recognize that the people who are coming to the pawn shops, there's nowhere else for them to go, right? Meaning no one else is lending them money. It's like, oh, but you pawn shops, you charge terrible rates. Yeah, because half the people don't show up and, and pay. And no one else in the world, they can't go to Chase Bank and get a loan. Chase Bank ain't, ain't lending them anything. But any, whatever, I'm not here to either pro or con on pawn shops. However, people literally come and they, they'll bring in collateral, like People will bring in their toolboxes sometimes as collateral for a loan, right? Now, of course, the loan might be at a very high rate, but people will bring collateral. I mean, what are things most commonly brought to pawn shops? A lot of weapons, believe it or not, guns. People bring guns. What else? Jewelry, Jewelry is very common. Uh, TVs. I mean, it's, it's crazy. What? If you, yeah, I've been in pawn shops a couple times. Interesting story. There was, there was someone who... There was, a, there was a, a, a person in our community who was an orphan, and they didn't have any money, and they pawned away their mother's jewelry. And then they asked me if I could help out, because they, they really wanted their mother's jewelry. So I ended up going in and out of this pawn shop multiple times, reclaiming the same, the same jewelry. Until finally I said, I'm going to keep this jewelry, okay? Because I've bought it back now a couple times, and, and I'll give it back to you when you pay off the loan, or whatever it is. I'm saying, I, I, I don't want you to lose your mother's jewelry, because that's all you have from her, but... I also don't want you to be irresponsible. You just, I'll get it back for you, and then you repawn it, and whatever. And then, of course, each time you repawn it, the pawn shop is taking a fat finger. So, anyway, it's interesting to see the, the whole world of the, the pawn shop world. However, in the olden days, people would bring as collateral, like, their blankets. Blankets were actually a very expensive item. So, yeah, if you had a down blanket, for example, right? That was a very, very expensive item, Right? And people, most people didn't have a down blanket. And you definitely could, if you would use that as collateral, you can get a loan. 
Now, if you take your fellow's garment as a security. Now, again, you have to, we, we, can't, we really can't comprehend poverty. Baruch Hashem. I, I mean this with the greatest of like, we have never seen real poverty. There could be a reality where somebody would pawn their shirt. You know, like, they don't have anything. There's nothing in the house. Like, your house is made of mud. You know what I'm saying? Like bricks and whatever, like, and straw on the top. There's no, there's no jewelry in the house anymore. There's no candlesticks. That's already been sold. There, there's nothing left. So you'll pawn whatever you can. So the Torah says, basically, if you are given, let's say, a blanket, at night you've got to bring the blanket back to the guy so that he has what to sleep on. In the morning you take it back. He doesn't feel comfortable. You have the security of having his stuff, but you gotta, you basically gotta, you got to switch out the collaterals. If someone is so poor that they only have one blanket, so at night he gives you his shirt and you give him back the blanket. In the morning you give him the blanket and he takes back his shirt. I, I can imagine it would have been quite a, a challenge to, to even lend somebody money in that case because there's so much back and forth all the time. But the Torah says you've got to make sure you keep returning each thing at the right time. He's This is all that he has. This is, this is the garment for his skin. But Meishkov, what is he going to lay down with? If you take his only blanket, what's he going to sleep with at night? Now here are the key words. And it will be when he cries out to me, and I will listen because I am compassionate. So hold on a second. You're telling me that if a guy has no money, and I probably lent him petty amounts of money before, now he comes to me once, $1,000. And he's got this down blanket, which is worth $1,000, but he's already defaulted on five loans. So I said to him, okay, fine, I'll, I'll lend you the money, but you've got to give me your blanket. Now I've got to sit here and make sure I, I return it, I get back and forth, because otherwise, what's, what's he going to sleep with? That's not my problem. That's not my problem. That's his problem. But God says, you've got to be careful, because if he cries out to me that he's not feeling good about this whole situation, I'm going to listen because I'm compassionate. What did I do wrong? You tell me I have to lend money. Remember, we said im kesef talva does not mean if you lend money. It's when you lend money. There's a requirement to lend money. Now, by the way, it's fascinating. I think the most important rule to understand when you lend money to people is... What's the most important rule when you lend money to people? Get it in writing. Okay, that's a important ruling. Rib it. No, rib it. No, no. Rib it means... Uh, Interest, no interest. Be willing to let it go. There we go. Okay, thank you very much. Yonasan, right? When you lend money to people, the general rule of things is you're not getting it back. That's the reality. I see a couple smiles here in the realm. I'm sure you've had that experience. Now, of course, there are things that you can do. There's, there's different types of lending money. Okay? There's different types of lending money. There's the type of lending money where, like, Okay, someone needs $100, and if I lend it and I don't get it back, it will be a shame, but I'll be okay. Then there's lending $5,000 or $10,000. I don't have the ability to just walk away from that. Okay? Now, in those kind of situations, what you should do is you have to get an arev, a guarantor. Right? You get someone to sign that they're an arev. I'll tell you a fascinating story. This guy called me up, desperately and needy. He needs $5,000. This is back when I was much younger and starting out my career. But I happened to have $5,000. I needed it for something in a few months. I needed it for something in a few months, but I didn't really need it. And I, I said, look, the Torah says, if you have the money, you have to lend the money. It's not in case of if, it's when you will lend. By Torah law, if someone comes to you and you have the ability to give it to them, you're supposed to give it to them. Now, of course, there's entire laws written about, the entire books written about the laws of loaning from man to man, you know, there's entire books written about this. Of course, you can't take interest. That alone is just incredibly complicated in a lot of cases, depending on what you're loaning. But a person comes to me with his loan. So I said, look, I said, I have, I have the money. I'll give you the $5,000, but I, I really, really need it. He wanted it for me, like I think, in March. I needed it back by May or whatever it is. I said, I want a guarantor. No problem. He gets me a guarantor. And this guarantor gets on the phone with me. And this guarantor says to me, he says, he says I have a million dollars cash sitting in my bank account right now. And he happened to be, he was a wealthy guy, this guy. He was a wealthy guy, legitimately. 
And I said to him, why don't you loan him the money? He said, I already gave this guy so much money. If I give, if I give him another penny, my wife will kill me. But this way, I'm not going to give any money to him, but I'll, I'll guarantee the loan. I said, you know that you're going to end up paying it back to me, right? You, I said to him, and I said in those, those words, I said, you know that you're going to end up having to pay me because I don't think this guy's going to be able to pay it back. He says, I know, and that's okay. Okay. I loan him the money. Of course, does he pay it back? No, because we don't expect anyone to pay it back if they'll borrow the money from you. Call up the guarantor. Now, it so happens that the guarantor works for a company, a financial firm. Literally, I think the day before, two days before, I came to him, his boss was accused of a whole slew of financial crimes and was literally perp walked out. You know, they do, they do like these raids with like, they come and they get him and they put the handcuffs on him and they put him in the car and all the press is there. This guy's boss was literally two days before perp walked out and I said to him, you know, you, you got to pay me. He's like, there's not a penny coming in and out of my account right now, you know, because of the scrutiny or whatever. Mind you, it's probably 10 years later still. So the guy has not paid me back to this day. Baruch Hashem. I'm not, I'm not like, Hashem has taken very good care of me. Hashem will take good care of you when you do what you're supposed to do. The point is, even when you do the right things, it doesn't mean you're going to get the money back. When you loan money, you have to understand. There's like, there's rules about it and there's whatever. See, the bottom line is though, the Pesach here says, if you don't, if you, if you oppress the guy too much for the loan, giving you back the money, you're, you're hassling him too much. You're texting him every day, give me back my money. You're calling him. And there, there, are, there are loan sharks, unfortunately. And I'm not talking about the mafia. I'm talking about whatever, like certain elements that are like, uh, there, there are certain elements of, I, I have a, someone told me he heard a recording of this guy calling up a person from the, the wife of the owner of a company that he loaned money to saying, I just saw a picture on your Instagram account of your husband on vacation and he's wearing a Rolex. Send me the Rolex now. <laughs> okay, but the question is, Hashem is saying, if you don't if you don't go out of your way to be super nice to this guy who loaned you money and is not paying it back, he's gonna call out to me and I'm gonna listen because I'm I'm compassionate. But what am I supposed to do? Okay. So if Chaim Shmuel Levitt says in his incredible safer, Moach Valev brain and heart, he says like this. This is unbelievable. He bases it on what the Sephorno says. The Sephorno is one of the great early commentators. He says, bottom line, you did nothing wrong. You loaned the guy money. You did everything right. But if you hassle him too much and he cries out to me, you did nothing wrong. However, when he cries out to me about his poverty and the pressure he's feeling from you, what am I going to do? I'm going to end up giving him a little bit of what I'm supposed to give to you. What does that mean? The Sforno explains that God sets up the world where there's supposed to be people in need and people who take care of them. That's the way the world is supposed to be. Hashem says, for whatever reason, I chose Yankel to be the giver and Chaim to be the taker. But that's because I want to give Yankel the mitzvah of giving, and Chaim, for whatever reason, maybe he, in a previous life, was mean to be, whatever it is, he's going to have to go through the humiliation of being an asker, a beggar, a, even a borrower, a constant, frequent borrower. However, when you take the investment that I made in you, and you use it, in a way that oppresses other people, you're not doing anything wrong, but, but you have the money and you're just oppressing this guy. And I'm just going to say, okay, fine. Next time, I'll just give it straight to Chaim instead of giving it to you so you can loan it to Chaim. You understand? Yankel, Hashem gave it to, again, Yankel was only supposed to make 100 grand. And Hashem gave him 110 grand so he could lend 10 grand to Chaim. Chaim, for whatever reason, had to borrow 10 grand. But if you start oppressing Chaim, you're not... You have the right to, so to speak. But Hashem says, okay, I guess you're not a good messenger for me to use for taking care of other people. There's a, there's a verse in Mishlei. There's a verse in Proverbs. 
chapter 22. It says, Ashir v'rash nifgashu, osek kulam Hashem. A poor man and a rich man meet. Hashem makes all of them. What does this mean? Explains the Gemara. When Hashem go, when a poor man goes to a rich man and says, can you please help me out? If he helps him, great. But if not, the poor man and the rich man meet, Hashem makes all of them. Which means Hashem recalculates, rejiggers the equation. Through every interaction you have where somebody is asking you for charity, for help, Hashem is saying, here's an opportunity for me to rejigger the equation. Am I getting what I want out of this equation? Because if not, I can just make, I can flip it in one day. And the poor man will become the rich man and you'll become the, the poor man. Maybe, maybe you, you weren't the right fit for being rich. I thought you were, God says, I gave you the opportunity. But Osekulam Hashem, Hashem makes them all. Hashem is the one who's sitting in heaven and with that big ab- abacus in heaven, moving the, the beads up and down. If you don't act right as a rich man, God says, okay, switch it down over here, take your money away, give money to him. For Hashem, it's nothing. It's, it's simple. It's an easy equation. When a person comes to your house, recently someone came to my house, yesterday morning, very sweet person collecting for a very worthy cause. And I know him for years. And he, he mentioned to me that a certain city he stopped going there. Because people would be so rude to him. Sometimes not even say a word to him. He would knock on the door. They'd open the door, see who he is, and just close the door without even saying anything to him. And he said he just he couldn't handle it anymore. He stopped going to that city. Every opportunity that you have an encounter with somebody... Hashem is giving you an opportunity to rejigger the scales. And the same thing, he says, applies, fascinatingly, not just to giving money. What about wisdom? What about if someone comes and says, can I learn with you? Eh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm too busy. There's another verse, also in Proverbs, but this time in chapter 29. Rosh v'ish tachim nifgashu a poor man and a man of deep thought meet. Hashem gives luster to both of their eyes. So this is very similar language. The previous one said a poor man and a rich man meet. Hashem makes them all. Here it says a poor man, which Rashi means poor in knowledge, and a man of great thoughts meet. Hashem is the one who makes the luster in both their eyes. Hashem is the one who enlightens both of them. What does this mean? Someone comes to you and says, can I learn with you? And you say, I would love to. And then you learn with him. Hashem gives both of your eyes luster. Hashem makes both of you smarter through that interaction. Even the guy, I may be teaching him, and I don't learn anything new from what I'm teaching him, but Hashem says, because you were willing and kind enough to share of your wisdom with another, I'll make you wiser. And if, God forbid, you say no, what happens? Hashem rejiggers the scales. Every interaction between you and another human being is an opportunity for Hashem to move those heavenly abacuses to determine what things will you be wealthy in. If you're the kind of person who paints smiles on other people's faces, Hashem will give you more smiles for your own face. Right? If you're the kind of person who interacts with people, friendly, happy, warm, makes people feel good, Hashem will give you what to feel happy, warm, and good about so that you can pass that on to others. But when you meet people, if you're nasty, or if you're just cold, Hashem says, okay, I'll, I'll make your life nasty and cold so people will stay away from you. Every, every interaction, every human interaction is a rejiggering of the scales. Okay. Next. Does that include Mishlapam give money to? Yes, absolutely includes Mishlapam. So, the question is, does that include the people who come and knock on your door or you see them in show? Absolutely. The answer is absolutely. Now, it does not mean that you have to give them a lot. It's not about how much you give. It's about how you give it. Right? 
And I, you know, Baruch Hashem, in my, in my lifetime, I've had the opportunity at times to give more. I've had the opportunity at times to give less. And just based on what I had the, whatever Hashem had blessed me with at the time, my goal is always that no matter whether, you're, whether I'm giving you more or I'm giving you less, I should at least make you feel the same. I may not be able to give you the same check that I gave you last year, but I should have the same warmth, the same kindness, the same open door, the same come on in, the same respect. Even if you can only give a guy a dollar, but you give it to him with a smile. I remember a story, the Gemara says, the Gemara says, if you give a, a pruta to, a, to an ani, if you give a pruta, like a penny, five, five cents, if you give a nickel to a poor person, you get six blessings. If you give a smile to a poor person, you get 11 blessings. Okay? Where do we see this? There's a passage that says, it's referring to the blessings that was given to Judah by Jacob, his father. Before he died, he gave blessings to all his children. And he's describing how Judah is going to have incredible wealth. He's going to have a very, very rich land. It will be able to have a lot of agricultural products. So it says, Your eyes will be red from the abundant, delicious, incredible wine that will grow in your land. And to this day, by the way, in Judea, which is the part of Israel where the tribe of Judah used to live, they have some of the best wineries. Mamish, amazing. Shiloh winery. Gush Etzion winery. Amazing, amazing wine. Coming out of Chaklili Einayim Yayim. Hashem says, you're going to have amazing wine. Uleven Shinayim Mechalov. And you're going to have white teeth from all the good milk that you're going to drink. Okay? Says the Gemara, don't read, as your teeth will be white from all the milk you'll drink, but rather that is better showing your white teeth to somebody, smiling at someone, showing them your white teeth is better than giving them milk. And as they say in Aramaic, Bididi hava uvda. This happened to me. What happened? When my first daughter was born, we moved in with my, uh, with my mother-in-law and father-in-law in Borough Park. And there was a big show right around the corner from me, Bavav, whatever, a few blocks over. And they had a, you know, a million minyanim for chakras. So when I would get up in the morning, I would go there and there was always minyanim. There was also a lot of people going around like this. Now, there were so many people that I was, I just gotten married, I didn't have any money, you know, so like, so what I would do is I would, I would make a decision, and at first I didn't know, you know, like I would give everybody a dollar, and I, would, like, I could give out 30, 40, 50 dollars in the morning, you know what I'm saying, like it's not sustainable for a young guy, I didn't, I didn't have that kind of money. So I decided, every day I'll give out 10 dollars, I'll give 50 cents to the first 20 people who come to me. Okay? So... Every day I would come, ten dollars. The first guy would come. I would get some change, whatever, work it out, and give out. You know, and usually, I mean, you could have, you could be davening at Bava, and, and 30, 40 people could come over to you. Okay, I'm sitting after davening, and I'm saying to Hillam, and this Meshulach, you know, a person from Eretz Yisrael, a shaliach mitzvah, a, a, a emissary of God who comes to give us the opportunity to have the abacuses rejiggered in our favor. And again, that's how you have to look at everybody. Every person who comes to ask you for charity or whatever it is, you may not be able to give him. But remember that this interaction is being watched in heaven. Hashem says, I'm not angry. If you don't give the guy charity because you don't have the money to give to him, that's fine. But if, he, if you treat him in a way where he cries out to me and he feels embarrassed and he feels ashamed, he will cry. I'm going to listen because I'm compassionate. You may have not done anything wrong, but I'll rejigger the financial resource allocations that I have. Maybe you're just not the right person to have money. So anyway, I'm sitting on the side, and this gentleman comes over, and he goes like this. You know, He's got the money, he goes like this to me. And I say to him, because I was already finished davening, so at this point I could talk. I said to him, Slicha, enli achshav, aval manishma. I said, I'm so sorry, I don't have anything. I said, how's it going? And I smiled at him. This guy... He just broke down. He sits down with me and he starts telling me the pain of his life. Like, what he's going through. He's a young father. He's got three kids at home. One of them is sick. And the medicine that he needs for his kid isn't covered by the basket of approved medicines in Israel's socialized medicine system. But what's he going to do? He's let his kid die? So no, he's got to run around trying to raise money 
but it's so difficult. He's a young father. He's, li- he's leaving his wife and his kids behind. And it was in the middle of the winter time, and he's trudging in the cold from house to house, and people are slamming doors on him. I, my heart went out for him. Now let me tell you, I, I didn't give him 50 cents, but just being able to listen to him and hear him out, even like so many times he... He doesn't speak English almost at all. I speak his language, so I speak Hebrew fluently, so he could at least even just pour out his troubles in a language somebody they could understand. And we talked, and I, I gave him encouragement, and chizuk, and, and he got up and he walked away. We shook hands, we embraced. Like I gave him so much more than 50 cents. I gave him so much more than 50 cents. 50 cents would have got me six brachos. But actually giving a guy a smile and a warmth, 11 brachos. By the way, what a seven plus... Sorry. 6 plus 11 is 17. What is 17 the gematria of? The numerical equivalence of? Tov. Good. Right? I'm just trying to remember. If, it's, you, give the guy, if you give the guy a, a penny, you get either 6 or 7 brachos. If it's 7 brachos plus 11, then it equals chai. If it's 6 brachos plus 11, I forget right now, then it equals 17, which is tov. So either way, we're covered. But the point is, Hashem is telling people, in the way you interact, with whether it's you loan somebody money, and maybe he really truly doesn't have the money to give it back, don't oppress him. He doesn't have the money. What are you going to do? You're going to just text him all day long? You're just helping him feel worse about himself. Mm. You were given the ability to give. You know, if you have a collateral person, if you have a, if you have a guarantor, you go to the guarantor. But... If you loan them the money without any collateral and he doesn't have it, treat him right. Because Hashem says, even if, if you didn't do anything wrong, but if he cries out to me and says, I'm feeling oppressed because Laby's bothering me all the time, Hashem's like, that's an opportunity for me to rejigger the scales. Remember the verse in Proverbs. Remember this verse. Ashir varash nifgashu. A rich man and a poor man meet. Hashem makes them all. Every time there's an interaction between somebody who has more and somebody who has less, and they're asking for help, Hashem is watching them all, and Hashem makes them all. Make sure that you're on the side that Hashem says, let me give him more resources, because every time he meets somebody in a station that's going through more financial difficulty than him, he leaves them feeling uplifted. And with that, I wish you all an uplifted Thursday. Thank you for coming, thank you for listening, and thank you for being awesome. You've just experienced another Torah class, brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.